All right, welcome to Equal Time Soccer. I'm Matt Pavratsky here with three-time NWSL champion, Danny Foxhoven Young. Danny, thank you so much for being here. There's so much more to your storied uh, soccer career, but we'll just start with that. And now you're officially a Minnesotan. You're on this show where we only talk to Minnesotans, so you officially have your badge now. Uh, what brought you to Minnesota, and uh, what's your first impression been like so far? Yeah, well, we are very happy to be here. Um, this is a new, it's a new journey for me. So I'm really trying to branch out and get to know Minnesota and Minneapolis as much as I can. Um, but my wife and I moved here uh, last year from Portland, Oregon. And it was really, it just felt like it was time for a change. We all know COVID really brought out <laughs> a lot of you know, wanting to be around family and reprioritizing, you know, how life is. And we decided family was was an important thing to be around. So we made the move here and we've been here for about six months and uh, we're, we're starting to settle in. Finally just bought a house. So it's official. It is official. Yeah. Now you're now you're fully doing it. You're you're invested. Well, Let's jump in and talk a little bit about your initial playing career So, as, as a pro. So you came out of college as a big-time star, one of the top scorers in the history of the University of Portland program. And for those who don't follow maybe outside of the U of M because you're Minnesotans or you don't follow outside of like the Gophers and the NWSL, Portland is like an institution historically, like just a ridiculous who's who of big-time, you know, Christine Sinclair on and on, that, you know, Rapino's everyone um so you you know you're one of the top scorers there so you leave you get drafted by the philadelphia independence which was in the wps the top women's pro league at the time but then the wps folded mm -hmm. so my first question and the most important one is do you still have that kit and let's take a look at it <laughs> you know what here's the really unfortunate thing I never even got a kit. I never actually made it there. So the league folded two weeks before I was supposed to report. So I'm really sad to say that I don't even have a kit from the team I was drafted to. And not even not even a scarf, not anything. I have nothing. I have no proof outside of the tweet, which by the way, when, when I was playing, uh, we didn't have a big, you know, like a uh, draft that we all went to there was nothing like that i literally found out i was drafted via a tweet so yeah. <laughs> so that's the only proof i have this is great i also do want to shout out i believe this is amy rodriguez and, it this, is. Is, and this is a this is like a wps trading card this is this is kind of actually amazing i was really proud i was able to find this but you i yeah, mean that was I kind of like those kits. There's some grays. the The gray kit is also kind of nice. So it's it's a shame you didn't get to go out and go out and play in Philly because you were such a kind of a West Coast uh, player the rest of the time. Um, yeah. We won't we won't go through every single team you played on and all those things, but we I will say you played with so many huge names over the years, both in college and in the pros. Megan Rapino, Jess Fishlock, Hope Solo, Sydney Larue, Tobin Heath, Alex Morgan, Christine Sinclair, on and on. Just tons of names that everyone knows now and are just you know national team stars hall of famers all those people was was there everyone ever someone you played with where it was really sort of really meaningful for you to get that opportunity as like you felt like you made it or you maybe you were even a little starstruck was there anyone that really stuck out in that way of all of these legends that you shared the field with you know 
I will say um, when I was playing with all of the names that you just listed, to me, I was, you know, I was vying for their spot really. So it wasn't necessarily where I was like, oh my gosh, Megan Rapino, or, you know, um, it, it's Christine Sinclair. I, I looked up to them a lot. They were much more senior than me when I came into the league. So it was more of right. like a mentorship and um, let me learn how they handle themselves as a professional. Um, but it wasn't necessarily so much like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm enthralled by this. Right. I will say Hope Solo was probably my favorite person to play with because she brought, she just brought it every single day. And she was like, not gonna let you just come in and like half ass the practice, you know, it was never like that. And so I really, really enjoyed playing with her uh, just cause it was, you know, it was so different. Um, but I would say it was kind of like, we were all, you know, we were all trying to make each other better. Um, I did have the opportunity, however, to coach when I was coaching with the youth, the U.S. youth teams. Uh, I got to coach next to Mia Hamm. And that for me was a really that was a pretty amazing experience. She's somebody that I mean, I was nine, you know, when the 99 Women's mm -hmm. World Cup happened. And for me, that was like the a changing moment in my life, as I'm as I know, every, you mm -hmm. know, woman soccer player my age was looking at that team. So for me, that was that experience was like, oh, I am here next to my personal hero. That would be, that would be insane. I mean, I, you would really be just like, I, I would be so, I would be stammering and I would be so bad. I, Mia Ham is so funny. She was on um, Julie Foudy's podcast like two years ago or a year ago or whatever it was. And she was telling the story about being at like a board of governors meeting for like all of FIFA or like all of US soccer or something. And she was just going into this story where she shows up and she realizes like her pants are ripped and she goes <laughs> and, and she, and she, and she and Julie Foudy are just losing their minds laughing this entire time because she's like, so I went into the bathroom and I was like, well, I don't know. I don't have a safety pin. I don't know what to do. And she was like, what am I supposed to do? She's like, can I get a skirt? Can I call someone? Like, can someone bring me? And I don't even remember the end. I just remember they were both dying laughing the whole time. And it's like this legend just telling this like super honest story about being at like an incredibly important meeting and like her pants have a rip like down the butt. It's just like the funniest. Oh, and it's like amazing. the last, it's like the last thing. Yeah, and it was like the last thing you would expect Mia Ham to say because she just seemed so like stoic and composed and whatever. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and I mean, I think you know as much as we talk about all those huge names, I mean, you you are the exact type of player that folks who have followed the professional leagues in the U.S. knows that you know you're the type of player those leagues are built upon, like folks who are day in day out starters, rotation players players who are making the minimum players who are making, you know, in your era, you know, 10 grand, less than 10 grand and no housing and nothing else. And so working, obviously working other jobs or unless you're like very generationally wealthy. So for you, yeah. were there other teammates other than the sort of super shiny ones I mentioned that you just really appreciated or folks that you really remember when, you know, when you're trying to coach up someone younger, you're like, listen, and you you remember like a certain teammate you had that was just always really important to you? 
Oh man, yeah. There's there is a whole list of players. To be honest, I could go through every team and the people. I would say those were the ones that were most influential to me. Actually, was the ones that were you know were not the flashy players, but were there every day doing the hard work. Um, and I could go through a list. There's Bev Yanez, Keelan Winters, Ellie Reed, you know, Lou Barnes um, at. At the Thorns also, there was, you know, some players who were in the WPS mm -hmm. and wanted to try it again in the NWSL. So there's like Angie Kerr, who also was a University of Portland player. Um, and all of those people were so amazing. You know, that that was really a lot of those girls are still playing and made it through the, you know, the more trying times and and now are making a little bit more money. So <laughs> maybe they're, you know, they're still <laughs> they're still in it. Um, but I, I think there's no shortage of those players. Uh, the women mm -hmm. that I really, really respected those so much were the players who came out uh, of college or had been in the league previously and were the reserve players. Uh, so that yeah. means even that they weren't even on contract. So even the, you know, the 10,000 that I was making, that was a lot to the women who are the reserves, um, you know, and they were showing up to practice every day and, you know, maybe would get one game a year. Mm -hmm. uh, the league still, you know, those players are crucial to the survival of the league. You, you, there's just not enough on a roster of 25 when you're traveling all the time, you know, you need more bodies than that. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's really where the heart of NWSL is. And I think there's so many women coming out of, college every year and they need a place right. to land and they want to play professionally and you know that's that's the option uh so my heart goes out to them because they you know they put in so much work and i think it goes unrecognized right and it's i think it's like last year there were so many brutal things about last year both for soccer and otherwise but one of the silver linings that I thought was seeing all of these like backbench and reserve players getting a chance during the Challenge Cup during the fall series. Like when you have yes. like, you know, Bethany Balser, like, you know, the third keeper in Portland is coming in and just crushing yes. it. And you these players where it shows that, you know, for the second, anyone from sort of a back end starter to a bench player, the U.S. has just mountains of those players. Like you said, I mean, oh they just. They just don't they just don't keep playing because it's such a grind and we haven't yet recognized sort of what their efforts are worth. And so they just they either try overseas and then they're done or they never try or whatever it is. So like you're saying, the players who actually grind it out are such saints because they're the ones who, as the incremental progress happens, yeah. then eventually those players will actually make at least a living wage, which is insane yeah. to say, you know, like all of those things. So I, I love hearing about that. Uh, let, I'm going to give a quick shout out here to Pence Homes. They are helping support the show. Um, they, When my wife and I, you mentioned just going through a home buying process, Danny. It is an insane market right now. My wife and I just moved houses in Midway last year. And uh, Lydia was our realtor from that team. She was fantastic. Angie was our finance person from, you know, on the mortgage side, but they work so much with Pence Homes. Uh, they did just incredible work. It is insane in the market right now. So you need a realtor who you actually can trust and will be authentic with you. So if folks are looking for someone, go to penshomes.com, find them on Twitter. They support so many soccer teams and soccer efforts in the Twin Cities. So they are a huge, uh, a huge supporter. And thanks to them uh, for backing the show. And, you know, speaking of some soccer causes, Danny, you have so much like 
you have so many times where I've seen where you get recognized for stuff you do off the field as well. You know, you were named most inspirational player when you were at University of Portland. You were a finalist for Woman of the Year while interning at Active Children Portland, which is like, I need to see this trophy, by the way. You, you know, you amplify causes like Athlete Ally, which obviously we have done so many times as well. You've spoken out about, you know, your challenges of playing through Crohn's disease, all these things that are sort of really connected to the soccer, but really sort of things that up until a few years ago, I don't think we really saw athletes take that on. And I think you were sort of one of those folks who were at the forefront of using your platform, using your voice and trying to sort of, you know, better the rest of the community you were in. Was that something you sort of had to grow into or sort of leaned on other folks to grow into? Or was that something that you always just felt was sort of natural as part of your um, playing and living, you know? Yeah. Well, so I grew up playing for the Colorado Rush. That was the club I, I grew up in. And um, when I was playing with them, they there was a little boy in the club who, who um, brought this idea to the club to collect all of you know our used sports equipment and then using the Air Force because the Air Force base is out of you know out of Colorado to fund you know to basically bring shipments overseas and. Um, and it became this gigantic thing. And especially as the rush grew and, you know, moved into multiple states and then countries, it really became a thing that the whole club got into. Um, and it just came from this, you know, this one little boy's idea. Um, and so that was, I think, the first time that I got my hands on something like that. My family was a really big part of that. My dad offered he has a bunch of like storage spaces for his work. So he offered all of his storage spaces as sort of the inventory holding um, spots until they could be moved to the Air Force Base. And uh, and so that was kind of the first thing that I got to really see like how much of an impact just one idea could have and how far that could go. If you just like get creative and, you know, ask for help and, and figure out how what resources you have at your fingertips. Um, so that idea actually translated for me into college. I, I at University of Portland was a um, business major, but I focused in entrepreneurship and nonprofit management. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I actually used school to start a nonprofit, and it was called Equipment Across Continents, and it was really an idea to take it in Division One, and I'm sure in every level uh, there is no shortage of equipment that just at the end of season gets thrown in the middle of the locker room. Somebody takes it to the goodwill, you know, or like it doesn't get used um, or it was used and, you know, nobody wants it anymore. Mm -hmm. So I saw a really big need there of people who want, you know, this want that equipment and could use that equipment and want to represent the university or the girls that played there or whatever. Um, and so I kind of started this, you know, we collected donations, we collected uniforms, we collected all that stuff and we sold it. Uh, and then we used the profits from that to fund shipments of really more used equipment, um, stuff that wouldn't really be sold here to, right. um, to overseas. And, uh, and we partnered with coaches across continents that is still a booming, you know, they're a great, great foundation that is you know, doing amazing things worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of the first, you know, I was like, oh, I can really, you know, I can be a part of this. And then through that, I just started to see how all of these humanitarian and 
you know, socially conscious brands and nonprofits and organizations were doing so many things that oftentimes, you know, weren't, they were the most important things, but they were not that uh, money, what, you know, not that money driven. Um, and right. I loved that, that mixture where I was like, okay, how can I be a part of this? And, um, and then you just, you know, the, from there, it just went, it just went like wildfire, you know, athlete ally became a really big part when uh, in, I think it was 2015 when gay marriage became legal and, you know, they were doing a lot with the Seattle, well, all of the teams in Seattle at that time. And it was just, it was really fun to be a part of the community of people who are speaking out and using their platform. And mm-hmm. um, now I just, I don't have as much of a platform, but I try to use my voice where I can, <laughs> you know? It's, well, I think it's also like you talked about that change over time of, you know, marriage gets legalized and then sports sort of start embracing it a little bit more. I think, you know, folks who were much more involved in the NWSL, you know, than me talk about those early years of, even the WNBA as well, this idea of for the longest time sort of knowing that maybe like gay and lesbian and queer folks were a big part of the fan base, but not really leaning in and not embracing it. And then also for sure, not like amplifying and owning it. And Mm -hmm. that was like that pivot of when leagues realized like, oh yeah, maybe we should recognize like 40 to 70% of our fan base that's like coming out, buying tickets, buying merch supporting um, these players and also supporting our players that are like now finally in a society that they're comfortable coming out, you know? So it's that thing of, it seems insane now to think that the NWSL or women's sports wouldn't have been embracing of like, you know, queer and lesbian and, and uh, other, you know, other identities. And it's, it's like insane to say that now because it's such a, um, such a different time, but yeah, yeah, in that era, I'm sure it must've been unreal. Oh, yeah. Well, I do think um, I actually think that that is a really big difference um, in what made the NWSL successful in comparison to the past leagues, Um, because I think the past leagues really marketed to young girls, families. um, And great. We still want we still want those fans, you know, like we want to provide a space for young girls and boys to look up to and know that they can you know, they can achieve this someday. But I do think embracing the, you know, the the spectrum of people who are interested in women's sports is not just young kids and families. It's mm-hmm. it's everybody. It can be right. everybody. And we all love seeing really badass women come out and compete. So right. you know, that's kind of that's where I think NWSL and specifically, I would say Portland Thorns nailed that from the beginning. They yeah. were like, let's bring this, let's get this group here. We know we have these people. Right. We know there's your fans. Let's, you know, let's get them out here and embrace them as our fans. Right. Well, and it's it's also, it's so funny, even if you think of it at like the micro scale, the idea of having like such a badass, like gay or lesbian player that you were all just like, are we just like pretending that's not what she is? Because she's like, She's a complete badass. Why don't we just like let that let her be her? It's so it's funny now in the era of like as much as I reference like Megan Rapino to you, you know, you played with her in college. That was like not the Megan Rapino now is like almost just like it means something else. Like you literally knew, you know, you played with her and her sister, right? So it's like yeah. you that is like, you know, 
like you were a much bigger deal than her back then. Like it's like a very. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know if, I, if that was ever the case. Uh, Megan Rapinoe is always Megan Rapinoe. So I will, I will say that even in Portland, she was like, yeah, she was like, you know, the person on, on campus, um, right. her and her sister. But, right. you know, it, it was it was definitely really fun. And I will say um, there's <laughs> this is actually really comical now looking back on it. But the NWSL, I think the first year, like right around when that was happening, they came out with a, a it was a commercial or something. I'm not really sure. But it was like trying to amplify um, just any anybody in the league who was in the LGBTQIA you know spectrum yeah. and and um, it was like if you can play you can play if you can score you can score and it was trying to say you know like love is love kind of a thing right and um, it was just so funny to look back on it because it was, <laughs> it was all like we were dying laughing in the background being like oh if you can play you can play you know when really we were all just like we all recognize as women, adult women here, like love who you love. We're all embracing each other. And you know, this is a, it was, it was just really a funny thing, but I get, I know the value of it now. It's it's important stuff. Well, it's like, you know, a a bunch of straight people at an agency like wrote this like gay ad. Like that's probably what it was. (laughs) That's exactly what it was. Wait, we know what being gay is like. And then they write the ad. Yeah, so it's kind of funny, but you know, we're. I feel like now it's it's a much better place. Everybody has been able to find yeah. find their own space, and now we have people coming out as non-binary and trans right. in the league, and that's like, I, I love to see it. Right. It's well, and that it's so it's so powerful to see those players doing that now because you know they're taking on this risk where like those people are truly under attack i mean they've always been under attack but just like so truly like legitimately under political attack and legal attack yeah. and so yeah that courage is is sort of unbelievable and i think you know you mentioning the nwsl back then is there anything that when you know you talk to either current players or players who are pursuing it now that like anything about the league then that you have to remind people like, oh no, you don't understand. This is what it was like. Like, what are some of those key things that jump out to you about, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like NWSL 1.0, like either, either with like your housing or travel or the games or whatever. Yeah. You know, I, I really feel like they tried to, to think about what went wrong in WPS and right. how can we make that better? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think they tried, but you know, at the end of the day, facilities were not always great. Um, I can speak to Boston, especially because they're not a, they're not a team anymore. Their facility was awful. It was it was so bad. They were literally in temp buildings. That was their right. locker room, and you know, it was always there was no AC flow, so it always smelled in there. You know, and it was just. It was so different, but now they've the league has every year. I know it's gotten better. They've they've raised the league minimum and maximum, which is great to see. You know, um, so I think back. I don't know if you have watched the new um, the HBO LFG oh. thing. Yeah, so you know, it's like listening to the the ninety niners talk where they're saying like, you know, yeah. we weren't we weren't paid twenty years ago, and our jerseys were these gigantic baggy 
you know, like they were basically sacks on them, you know? Right, right. Yeah, and you know, we had it better than that for sure. And they put in the hard work for us to get there. And I think the beginning of this league was, and I'm, and the WPS put in its own work too. You know, it had its own space where women right. were literally being paid, you know, they were being paid by game and it was like $200 by game, you know? So right. every time I do think they've gotten better and better and they've learned from their mistakes. And now I think it's a much more hospitable place do I think it's enough? No, but you know, it's, it's more hospitable. Right. It's yeah. I think it's still, it's still kind of a, you, you know, we're not there yet because players who go from like D one to pros still usually drop down in terms of like cosmetic treatment in terms of like training, uh, you know, staff facilities. I mean, even like housing and food, I guess like it's, it's yeah. so that's, Maybe maybe that's the level. That's, that's when we'll know when we're at least at parity. We're like a WCC, like a University of Portland player, like a Power Five player. Feels like it's the same. That that'll be a milestone that we can like drink. drink. For sure, for sure. I will say my when I was playing in Seattle, I uh, in Seattle, mind you, is a very expensive city. So I will preface this with that. But I actually lived in a studio with my brother and his best friend because we. Uh, cause yeah, we, I didn't have enough to, you know, to live by myself or even, even in like a bigger spot than in a studio, which is hilarious. And I did, I did work on the side. I coached and I was, a I was an apprentice at a woodworking shop for a bit. So I had my hands, you know, hand, hands full all the time, just trying to get by. So That's I hope street. now that, you know, that girls can survive on their paycheck. But it's not comfortable, I'm sure. Right. The housing, the housing getting added as compensation was like for anyone who's had to live in a city like Seattle or even the Twin Cities, they like people who have had to rent an apartment in the last like 10 years understand how big a deal that was compared to the salary increases. Cause now that housing is theoretically an all year compensation piece, like that's the same as getting like a, you know, eighteen thousand dollar raise. I mean, like it's a big, yeah. it's a big deal. Um so Let's pivot to you. You know, after your playing career, you've done a lot of stuff since then. You, especially, I think, had one stint that I find really interesting when you coached at uh, Purdue University Northwest as they transitioned from NAIA to D2. And this yeah. is like so in the weeds and like absurd. And I'm sure like almost no one cares about this funky thing. But like, I, as a D3 college athlete, we played against NIA schools. And I always found it so strange that that still existed. Like, how does this separate? like thing, like this entity for college athletics exists, but talk about your experience of going through that because like D2 is pretty legit. I mean, Minnesota has really high level D2 schools. I think you were going into like the GLIAC or whatever, which is a really legit D2 conference. They send people to the final, you know, elite eight, final four national champions all the time. So talk about that process because I have to imagine that was like a very sort of like a very specific type of challenge. Oh yeah, that definitely was. So um, that was, it was an amazing uh, first. I will say Purdue Northwest was, was amazing. Um, the people I worked with there, the girls, they were so fantastic. I actually look back on that time and, and miss it wholeheartedly. Um, but it was a really, really unique and challenging experience in its own ways. So um, 
NAIA was obviously has its own totally different set of rules. So when I first came in, before I even, you know, in the off season, I was actually able to work with the girls all the time. So they would, you know, I brought them, we would go to different facilities and we would practice and there was no real limitations. I could bring recruits in to literally practice with our team, you know, and there's so many different things you could do. Um, and then when we made the jump to D2, it was like, you know, just a portfolio of rules, really, which luckily, obviously, I was familiar with because of my own. Um, I was an assistant coach at University of Portland for a right. brief season um, in between. So, you know, I got to know a lot of those rules, but they were it was definitely adjustment. And I will say for the girls, I think it was an even bigger adjustment um, that jump. To the the league is the GLIAC, and it was it's with like Grand Valley State, which is by far and above you know the top school. They should be D one, really. Uh, yeah. Let's be real. I mean, they win. You know, they won the national championship like five to zero. I mean, it's it's you know it's that ridiculous. For some, for some context for folks who don't follow the head coach who who is a man, but we won't hold that against Michigan State a ton. Their their head coach just got hired by Michigan State to be the new um, women's soccer coach there. And again, you know, there there are women who they could have hired, but we won't hold that against this gentleman. But that that's how good uh, Grand Valley is. Yes. They just like, you yes. know. Yes, they're, they're, they're unreal. So, um, so that was a really, really tough adjustment. I think the level of play just, as you, you know, college soccer requires the foresight of four years, really, you know, four to six years. Like, you know that, well, recruiting happens so early in women's soccer, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's really like, okay, we're looking at 14 year olds to come in, you know, in four years from now, and that'll be our freshman. That's kind of how, you know, a lot of, a lot of coaches and, and colleges are looking at it. So, so I really came in with the challenge of like, okay, we're, we're where we're at and we are going to have to go a really long ways in a really short time. Um, so, yeah, those, it was a lot of like challenging those girls that were currently there to better themselves, to be better uh, soccer players, to use their soccer brain differently and develop their brain, you know, their, their soccer brain in a new way. Cause that, it's just not the same level of competition. So I was, that was like the biggest challenge. Um, we didn't win a game. <laughs> I think we won one game my first year and then we didn't win a game when we moved to GLIAC, but it was like a real rally cry. I mean, that team became really, you know, we were, we were a really solid group and those girls I still keep in touch with and, you know, well always, cause I, they really, you know, stole a lot of my heart. I, as someone who's been on a lot of very bad soccer teams, I'm, I'm empathizing so deeply with you, Danny. Also, I can't really imagine what that would have been like for you having been, you know, an insanely consistent winner at University of Portland. You know, your stint in NWSL was basically only championships. Like, and then you go and by the time you're coaching, like, I mean, how long had it, had it been since you even experienced like a losing season? I mean, like a really long time, I'm guessing. I feel bad saying this, but I don't think I ever did, to be honest. I, um, right. I, you know, my senior year in college was probably the worst season that I had up to that time. Uh, that was like, we had a really bad 
University of Portland season. Um, but even, you know, before that, my club teams, we were, we were won national championships with my club teams. Uh, you know, so it was, it was, yeah, I can't really say that there was, there was many of those seasons. So it was a tough one. It was a tough adjustment and it was a constant, like check myself because, um, you know, they can't, they can't do, they couldn't do anything about it. It was just a completely different level. Right. That's well, you also, you also would have been pretty young, right? Were you in like your mid twenties then? Yeah, I was 25, 25, 20. I think 26, excuse me. I think I got hired there 26. So yeah. That would be really stressful. I, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm like stressing for you right now. And it happened like 10 years ago. Um, yeah. So you also, you also have some experience coaching with sort of the youth national team ranks, right? You've um, you, we've chatted about that before. And I know, I always find that super interesting just because I think the older youth teams get some shine, for example, because like even the U of M, the University of Minnesota, very at least somewhat regularly has players called into the U19s or the U23s or U20s or whatever. You know, Katie Duong, who we who we lost to Stanford and we will be heartbroken forever. You know, she starred for the U20s when they won the CONCACAF championship last year, all that stuff. But I think the younger age groups are so interesting to me because it's still a huge accomplishment. It's just none of us as general fans ever get to see those teams. I mean, like I, like I never, I never see like U14 streamed somewhere. Yeah. But, but for you, talk about how you got brought in. You know how you actually got connected to that position, and then sort of you know how you viewed that role in terms of. At this age group, I'm really trying to get them to grow in this way, you know, for their trajectory. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, U.S. soccer is uh, is I wish that they played those games. I wish that they um, that they did stream the under 14s, under 15s, under 16s. But I, I get why they don't, because, you know, they're young players still. Um, but they man, those girls are so talented. They are just when I was 14, there was no way I was that talented, uh, you know, and I played on those teams. I was with the right. youth national teams all the way through. So I can say that it had the level of soccer is just exponentially grown um, in the youth ages. So it, it, it was really, really fun to be a part of that. I got connected through it because um, I knew I, I actually thought I wanted to go into, you know, coaching with U.S. teams like full time. And I know that that's different. Yeah. You, you kind of get brought in and out. Um, and that's kind of how U.S. soccer does it and work my way through my licenses and all that stuff. Um, so I, um, I know, I mean, the soccer world's so small. Uh, a lot of coaches have stints with U.S. soccer just in either whether they're recruiting or just, you know, watching players to get pulled into camps and things like that. Um, so it was kind of just, a, you know, I want to, I want to do this. And, um, some of my contacts helped me out and pulled me into some of their camps. So it was, it was really, really fun. I would do it again in a heartbeat. I was with the 14s at the time. So gosh, I don't even remember what like age group they were. I was like the right. fives at the time. Um, but you know, it was, a it was a lot of, I actually had to learn a lot going into it because. U.S. soccer now has like the way that they want to help develop these kids and make the U.S. soccer style of play. So, right. you know, it was a lot of like passing through these that they like coined terms for, you know, this pass is a A1 or whatever. I don't, you know, yeah, I don't yeah. remember all yeah. now. But it was a lot yeah. of things where I had to learn the lingo so I could properly teach it. 
Um, and I will say those nights on camp uh, at a camp are sleepless. They are sleepless. Those coaches are saints. You practice and every practice and game is filmed. And then you go through and you find, you highlight, you know, you clip video for the kids the next day. I mean, so that you can show them like, this was really good. This was something we want to see more of, you know, things like that. And it was all night. I mean, I think we probably slept <laughs> five hours for the seven days we were there, but it was fun. It was really, really fun. There's a, there's a, U.S. soccer has a bright future for sure. Do, when you're doing that, how long are those camps? Are you there for like a week? Is it like a nine day, like a four day? Like what's the, are you just like going down to Bradenton or you're in Colorado or where, and you're just like housing up or what? Yeah, it's kind of one of the, so they do, they do multiple camps throughout the year and then usually tri sort of plan them around like one or two international trips where they'll play, you know, the English under 14s and, you know, and do like a couple games in England or something like that. But for most of the time, it's just, uh, it's just like training camps. So you're there for seven to 10 days, you know, and, um, and, and the girls are just literally there to play soccer, you know, it's, two right. days, two sessions a day and, you know, maybe one night off kind of a thing. But it's just right. like you're I'm sure at the end. I mean, I remember at the end of those camps being like, holy cow, I am so tired. And I felt the same as a coach. <laughs> yeah, you, well, and you and you mentioned you played for sure in like the 17s and the 20s. And I'm sure a bunch of other levels that just don't get noted because there weren't like big tournaments or something. And it's it for anyone who hasn't watched it yet. I mean, it's. I just have to say, I would agree with what you said. It's really nuts. I mean, even it's a really good example. If you have a player you've seen play at the college level, and then you get to see them in the youth national team level, because for example, for the fans of equal time, if you've seen Katie Duong play, you know, let's say 30 college soccer games for the Gophers, you've never seen her look the way she looks with the youth national team. It's like, it is so different because everyone is at the same level. And so like the tide just raises all the boats. And so like, for instance, Trinity Rodman, who got drafted as like an 18 year old in the NWSL, she was on that squad with, you know, Katie Duong and all these other players who are just crushing it. And they just cruising through CONCACAF, which is not always the case. Mexico beats like the U.S. once in a while, but Mexico has really good people need to look out for the sleeping giant. That is Mexican women's soccer. Cause they, like Liga MX Femenil, there's so many things that are great about Mexican women's soccer. But when you get to see those youth national team levels, like 18, 19, 20, those are all like legitimately very good pro prospects, like like truly all like capable of getting there if they want to. And those games are really fun. Like they they put up, they were scoring like set pieces, run of play, counterattack, free kicks. Like it is just like, a highlight reel the entire time so yeah super fun i like watching that, watching that tournament was so fun it was so much so that i was like if the world cup would have happened i was going to try and like travel to the world cup it was so fun like it's it's a blast oh yeah i remember um when i was with the 23s back in my day the under 20 world cup was in germany we were there with the 23s um mm -hmm. to you know, to do our own little tournament. It wasn't a World Cup or anything, mm -hmm. um, but it was just a tournament. And then we got to watch some of the, the under 20 games. And whole, I just remember being like, holy smokes, these girls are so good. And that at the under 20s, that means everybody under 20. And so you had some 16 year olds who are coming in and just 
you know, just insane. So fast, so smart, um, right. so clever. It was just, it was really fun to watch. And now I think that about the 14s that I, you know, you get to go out and watch and you're like, wow, at 14, these girls are just absolutely insane. Yeah, that's awesome. I, yeah, I, it's, I mean, it's nuts to talk about players that young because it's like they have so much like physical development and all these things to go. But it's tough when you see a player that good to not just get hyped for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, Danny, now we are pivoting to hands down my favorite segment and a segment that still not a single fan or follower has said that they enjoy, but we can, I continue to do it because I enjoy it so much. It is called The Internet Said It. And this okay. segment is where I tell you things that the internet said about you and you get to tell us whether they're true or false. And you're actually a decently online person. You're one of the more online people than every guest we've had. So there's there's some oh. decent stuff. There's some All decent right. stuff. So first one, Danny, the internet said that you once got injected with steroids in your butt cheek by a Russian dude. <laughs> that is true. That's very, very true. Yes. Right. That's and so for those for those who have not read it before, I, I rep I like speak for this book. I feel like every other month I post that people need to buy it. The excerpt from Gwendolyn Oxenham's book, Under the Lights But in the Dark, which is just an unbelievable, just fantastic women's soccer book where each chapter is about a different player. Mm-hmm. I think you were the lead chapter, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. And there's second chapter. And so the, um, it's a, it's a book of just incredible stories. You are one of them. Nadia Nadim is one of them. Ali Long is one of them. There are just so many fantastic players. Um, but this chapter also got posted on sports illustrated online. And it's the story of when we talked about you getting drafted and then the WPS folding, I intentionally did not go into what happened after that, because this is the fantastic story of that, but to give folks a tease. And again, you yeah. all have to buy this book. It is so good. Um, Under the Lights and in the Dark by Gwendolyn Oxenham, a former Duke soccer player. She's just so great. Um, but for those who don't want to for, to entice people on what your chapter is about, tell people the sort of bullet points of your experience of yeah. going and playing over in Russia. Yeah, the bullet points. So it's, as you said, I'll, I'll give a quick summary. Coming out of college, I was drafted to WPS and the league folded. Um, so I being the new player, had no playing experience under my belt. So a lot of players, you know, the bigger players from the WPS got to take up the English Premier League and the, you know, the Bundesliga and all of the big teams in the Champions League. Um, Well, my agent found me a team in Russia, who was also a Champions League team, Um, historically had been in and out of the Champions League. So I was like, you know, cool. Let's, let's see what Russia has to offer. Let's see what this would, you know, not, this is not an experience that comes across your doorstep every day. So let's do it. And um, yeah, it it turned out to be uh, a lot of, a lot of things. It was, it it was a pretty locked in situation where we were kind of on a base and, you know, that was our, our thing. And the club itself was, um, had its hands in the, the Russian mafia and mob. So it, it, you know, it, yeah, there was some, some gray area of things that weren't so okay. And uh, I came back, tested positive for anabolic steroids. And it was right during that stint. I'll say this is right during that stint where the, just before the 2012 Olympics, where a lot of Russian athletes were caught doping. So it was, you know, it was kind of forced upon us. And 
Uh, and that's a that's a bullet point thing. It's much more exciting than that. There was a lot of other things that happened in Russia, but I will say I was very very thankful for the experience. I wouldn't do it again, but I, I was thankful for the experience. There's, I mean, there's so many stories of other players having a similar experience. Actually, some Philadelphia Independence players like came back early. Kia McNeil, who's actually now the head coach at Harvard, was like one of those players who four players went over Yale Averbush, like all these, all these women who went over to Russia and just left after two or three weeks because they, you know, probably 10 different reasons. I actually, one question I have, which there's reference in the book to you getting what then would be a fairly, frankly, an exorbitant salary. You were making like 3000 bucks a month, which again is not crazy money, but for the time and for women's soccer, yeah. For for context for folks, women's soccer players now, even if you go to like a Champions League team in, um, you know, Czech Republic, Serbia, wherever, you would base you a lot of the Americans now make about a thousand bucks a month. So like you getting three grand then, I had forgotten that detail. But my one question is, did you actually get paid? I I did not. I did not get paid. I think I got half of one paycheck. Um, and they had, they did take our passports. So that was the other thing. So a lot of those other women, they got to play, they played for um, Rossiyanka, which was the top team. And Rossiyanka is still a very solid Russian squad for sure. Um, and I, if it, for, I hope for the listeners, I actually challenge you guys to Google Rossiyanka women's soccer team uh, and sw swimsuits. I know this is weird. There was a game. Yeah. They made the women play in swimsuits. Yeah. There's and I'm gonna just were, leave that there. That that was in one of the articles um written by oh gosh, now I'm gonna forget his name. Noah something. I think um someone did a story where you were the feature for ESPNW and that made it into that story where there was a game where they literally made the players play in bikinis, which is yes. that's some set bladder bullshit right there. That is that's uh, exactly what it is. That's exactly that what is. it is. That yeah. is really yeah. absurd. Well, and it's yeah. and it's fun for those who follow other sports. WNBA players who have played in Russia basically tell the same kind of stories, except there's even more money on the basketball side. So players like Diana Taurasi, like these these mega mega global stars. And I should say, there's there's a part in this in this chapter about Danny where she's literally on a beach partying with Marta where Marta's playing Danny's guitar. So like if people need an excuse to buy this book, there are like 12, go buy it. Um, but the, uh, the, I've heard those, you know, Dan Diana Taurasi, all these women who have gone over there tell these stories about getting invited to these like oligarchs mansions because it's like a lot of the, you know, the mafia, but also tied in with like oil barons and all these people who are just billionaires. And they talk about just the absurd stories they have from being over there. So it's, it's it's I think it's not unique to soccer, but it, I'm you know. Yes, yes, there is no shortage of funny stories, and I have heard a lot of women who have come out after I told you know sort of told my story, and Gwendolyn Oxum came forward with my story, which right. she did an amazing job telling it. She's like yeah. one of the only people I trust really to yeah. give it due diligence. Um, but there's so many other people who have come and said. Oh my gosh, I had the exact same experience, you know. Did you did you have to do this too? And it was like, oh my God, I wish that people would have said this before. Right. You know, before I signed my year away to, right. to Russia, you know. 
Right. And we're and we're we're joking and there's a lot of funny stuff, but like honestly, like a lot of the behavior was abusive and you were dealing with stuff that was pretty serious. So it's it is important, I think, that players raise it because you know, players can go in eyes wide open, they can risk whatever they want to risk. But I think you telling your story is important because you know, you had times where you were physically basically assaulted, like by the coaches and like where there was, you know, like like very unacceptable behavior. So as much as we're like laughing and joking. So I, it is really important that you told your story because I think, you know, like you said, you went over there and all these women could have told you that before, but they, there's this pressure to sort of keep it bottled up. So yeah, I think it, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I do agree with that. I do agree with that. And, and you're all right. I am joking sort of because it is, um, you know, yeah. now I have the room and space to say, right. oh, I made it through that and that was crazy. Right. Um, also it was not, and I came back, uh, my body was not in a good, in a good space physically, mentally, I was in a really, you know, really bad space. And my relationship with soccer definitely was in turmoil, which I was at that point, you know, really trying to buy at the national team. So I think it was, um, it was something that I wish I had heard more of from people before. And, um, and I thought that was really important to tell my story. And to be honest, I also thought it was important because it was the story of a lot of the women who were stuck, literally right. stuck on that team from Eastern Bloc countries, you know, where they had no home to go back to. Um, the le the club literally owned, you know, their family or their education or, right. you know, that was their only means to a life that they could live, you know? And, and so I wanted to really also speak up because that is, it was really unacceptable. It right. was very, I can't believe that women would be stuck in that position, you know, and we're right. lucky here in the United States, regardless of, of how, you know, the league maybe has its flaws. It was, it was head and above anything else. Right. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I'll never stop pitching that book. I, it'll be 15 years from now and I'll be pitching that book to people. It's, it's, it's outstanding. So many interesting stories in there. Like, as I mentioned, you know, Ali Long, Nadia Nadim, some some really insanely household names now where at the time and at the time that Gwendolyn, I'm sure, was with them, they obviously were not like that level of player. So just out, like yeah. the origin stories of Nadia Nadim's childhood, there's so much good stuff in there. Um, and now now we're to our next one, Danny. You now you're from Colorado. We talked a little bit about that before we started. You yeah. spent so much time on the West Coast. You've been out there. But I think that, so the internet did say that you're kind of a lake sport badass. So I think you may fit in pretty well on this. And let's see, we do have some proof here. Let's take a look. So is this true? That you This is true. This is true. I uh, big lake sport person. Yes, mm -hmm. this is either me uh, or it could be my mom. Also, you can't you can't tell. Sure. My mom is also yeah. a, a big sports person. Um, so yeah, we uh, we love wakeboarding. We love wake surfing, skiing. Put me behind a boat. I love it. I'm I'm down yeah. for all of it. That's great. And I should I should say too. I don't I don't know if me announcing this will change your position on on how you handle this, but. Danny has a blog that's just like sitting there and exists. And there's like year, there's like years of like lengthy posts where you're diving into real stuff. You're just talking about like what, you know, your, your position on life and your experiences, like trips you took. There's honestly a lot of really cool stuff on there. So you 
like credit to you. Also, I think at one point you said there was one point where you said, oh, I, I know I should be blogging more than a couple times a week. And I'm like, holy shit, you're really holding yourself to a blogging must have came with a lot more pressure back then. Like it had to be a daily. It you did. A- and you know, you know why it started really was because of Russia, um, because that was right. actually the way that I could get information to my parents because we didn't have internet all the time. So it was, right. you know, actually we had like we had an internet, you know, USB port that had it, they told us that it had an hour of internet. It did not. It had maybe right. five minutes of internet. So I would write everything and then I would plug my internet in and upload it. And that right. would be my way to get home. I also really enjoy writing uh, or right. I did. I don't write so much anymore. And um, yeah, the internet was right in saying I used to have a blog <laughs> that is still there. I don't anymore, but everybody can check it out. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I will, I think one of the quotes you had in, in one of the articles talking about time in Russia was that they said they would pay for the internet and so that they would provide the internet which basically meant that they didn't and it, it didn't exist. Like yeah. <laughs> they yeah, were like, no, we'll pay. they were like, no, we'll pay for it. So you'll get it, which meant that they didn't and you didn't. Yeah. We were kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place there. So I was like, well, I'm going to download Harry Potter. I'm going to read Harry all of those seven times and then right. I'm gonna write my parents a story. <laughs> that's although that's a good that's a good throwback too. That's a, a rereading Harry Potter is very much an our age person thing. I think I don't know that I don't know if like if like young players right now would have the same affinity. But yeah, people in their thirties. Oh, like I'm 80- a diehard. So sorry to everybody who hates Harry Potter. I'm a diehard. Right. Well, and I mean, J.K. Rowling, I think we now know is kind of terrible. It's it's one of those things where dividing the art from the artist is a continual challenge that we're working through yes. for sure. I'll stand by yeah. that one because those yeah. books got me through some tough times. They got you. They helped you survive Russia, which we now know was necessary. And yeah. the last one we have for you, Danny, the Internet said that you were tied with fellow Portland pilot great. Christine Sinclair in what category? So this is our first fill in the blank internet said it. Oh, goals scored in one season. I, well, I guess I should have checked if there were multiple categories. That might be true. Okay, I don't know. The one that I know is true is PK's attempted and converted. Oh, really? Yes, you're tied. You're tied with her for the program lead. So I think that's. I think if anyone is tied with Christine Sinclair in anything, they're crushing it. You know what? The first thing that went through my head was um, there was one PK against mm-hmm. Bianca Henninger who played at Santa Clara. I got two PKs in the same game, and I missed both of them in the same game against Bianca Henninger. She was an incredible goalie. She still is, but. She, we grew up playing together and she knew my PKs like the back of her hand and she saved both of them. And now that's what's in my head was like, I could have had that one thing on sync and I missed it. 
What did now? Did she just know because you always had your one spot, or did did you have a giveaway in like the way your knee was bent or something? Gosh, you know what? She her strong suit was PKs. Like she, right. if there was anybody who you know, it's Hope and her are like equally as good at PKs, which is really saying a lot. And I just think she could read me. The first time I tried to change right. it up, and she saved it. So then the next time I was like, I'm going back to my usual, and then she saved it again. So. Right. I don't know. She, Maybe, I mean, she's very good. We had a, there was a moment in Minnesota women's soccer history in 2018 where the Gophers won the Big Ten tournament after being like the sixth seed or something. And they made a run and they won in PKs against, I think it was against Penn State. I forget who the championship game was against. I think Penn State. Yeah. And uh, Maddie Nielsen was the keeper and I talked to her after. And she said she and Allie Lipscher was her coach, who, you know, a former pro who's now the keeper coach at Kansas City. Um, and she said, Allie just worked PKs a ton with them because you, you know, you never know and, and all that stuff. Yeah. And they said the biggest giveaway, I was like, explain it to me, <clears throat> someone who really doesn't know anything about keeping. I was like, explain it to me what you, what you try to do. And they said the biggest giveaway is where the plant knee is like aiming. So not, not even the plant foot because people do weird stuff with the plant foot, but it's harder to. Yeah fake the knee because the knee is like truly where the momentum is going. And so that was, I mean, she literally won the shootout and won the big 10 tournament championship. I mean, she probably has a lot more tricks than that, but now, now I can be a D minus keeper coach just off that one tip. <laughs> yeah, with that, that's a good thing. You know, a hope, I feel like hope, I feel like hope was probably the best and she just did whatever she would just go with it. And the majority of the time she was right. So I don't, whatever she did is what I would say we all probably need to be listening to for goalies. <laughs> wait, did she, wait, did, are you telling me that she told you she didn't even try and read it? She just would go, she would decide before the kick and be like, I'm going right? No, I think she, well, that's a really good question. I don't know how she did it. I really right. don't. We never had a conversation about it, but she saved so many PKs. Uh, she, I think if you were to look at like most PKs saved, it might, she might be up there. I don't know. I mean, I, I think you're right, though. I think anything Hope Solo did on a soccer field is something you could be okay duplicating. I, she's one of those players where I feel like if she was standing in front of me, I would be very scared. Like, I would be, <laughs> it's like, it's like when I was standing in front of Carly Lloyd when the US team played at Allianz Field. I'm just like, uh, I'm very scared right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You are, yeah. You are physically intimidating me, even though I'm an overweight six foot 30 something like you. I'm very intimidated right now. Yeah. Both great people, though. Great, great people. Right. So, well, you know. well, Danny, this was such a blast. We are so glad that we now will fully claim you as a Minnesotan for the rest of your yes. life. Um, this is, you must embrace me. You, you're fully embraced. You're already wearing like a very uh a nice crew neck sweatshirt that's celebrating such an international vibe so that's great great vibes so danny foxhoven young thank you so much for being here uh you can follow danny's on twitter she's on insta there's very adorable uh stories and content going on there so so find her online and we will make sure we share in the in the notes the the link to uh the book under the lights thank and in the dark yeah, I appreciate it. I also would like to say that um, Ninth Street Soccer is is starting, and I'm going to be doing women's clinics there. If anybody's interested in getting some extra practice in, it's for beginners, 
through advanced. I'm going to be out there. I'll send information out. Um, but yeah, I want to, um, I want to get to know everybody. I want to get to know these listeners. And we will, we will retweet that for sure. It's, it's very, it's generally over by Dinky town. Like it's, I think a little West of like the U um, and it's, it's really cool. Like pickup soccer, tons of stuff. So yeah, that's great. Where, where else could someone go and get trained by a, a globally successful professional player? So go, go hit it up. Thanks so much, Danny. Yeah. Thanks for having me.